0: shore vineyard church audio podcast hey i know a lot of people who listen to this podcast don't even go to church at north shore vineyard you live in other parts of the country and i just want to say a big thank you to those of you who live in other states who don't even get to attend the church but you do support us financially we really appreciate that and if you're listening to this and you've never considered donating to north shore vineyard you can go to northshorevineyard.org, and anything you could give can help us continue to do what we're doing so thanks again Today's message is called Form, and we're looking at how our desires are shaped through spiritual practices as we follow Jesus. So, on to the talk, Mortal Vineyard. Thanks for listening. Few weeks we've been talking about our values, our philosophy of ministry, and, and you know who we are as a church and where we're trying to go as a church in the coming uh, year. But today I want to kind of talk about the spiritual journey in our lives, kind of what we're going for and what that would look like. So, start off on the front of your bulletin, you have a passage at the bottom. This is the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 1 through 2. He says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think one of the questions that I have found more people asking in all my years of being a Christian, is how do you know God's will? Any of y'all ever asked that question before? And when is it that we most often ask those questions? It's usually kind of in a crisis, right? <laughs> you get into some situation, you're at a fork in the road, maybe you've got a job offer, maybe you've got a relationship crisis, and it's like, i got to figure out what God wants me to do. And so we begin stressing out. We begin trying to ask people, like, how do I hear from God? How do I know what God wants me to do? How do I know the right way forward? Well, the Apostle Paul deals with this and says, at the end of this verse, then you will be able to know what God's will is, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Who wants to know God's will? All right. Who's listening to me? Okay. (laughs) Okay. But Paul's answer is a very different kind of answer than the, the kind of answer that we expect. Because I think oftentimes we want a technique. We want a formula. Just, you know, just uh, open the Bible up, play Bible roulette, and just say, God, what am I supposed to do? I, I remember doing that when I was in college. Um, there was this particular girl that I was kind of attracted to, and I was wanted to ask her out, and I... Opened up my Bible and said, God, show me what I should do. And it opened up to the book of Isaiah and it said, you shall go out with joy. That was her name, by the way. It's like, hot dog. (laughs) Paul says we can know what God's will is. God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. But the way to get there is not just employing a tool, it's getting the context right in our life. It is the result of a long, intentional process. It's not something that we ought to be scurrying to find. It is actually the result of a life lived a certain way. So if we go back up to the top of the verse, Apostle Paul writes, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, this is an important thing. Paul is not talking to an individual here. We tend to read it that way in our modern world. When we read the Bible, the the problem with the New Testament is that, you know, the word Y-O-U in English, it can mean you as an individual or y'all, but because we're in such an individualistic culture that prizes a personal relationship with God, oftentimes we read anything that says you in the New Testament and we're like, oh, it's speaking directly to me. No, this is an important part of it. Because we need to be in relationship with one another. So part of the way that this thing works is not just you as an individual. It's, it's y'all. I wish they would translate the Bible that way if I was, if I was president. <laughs> Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I urge y'all, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Paul starts this off by saying, what we're doing here is a response to the goodness of our creator. The God who creates and sustains everything. The God who has stepped into our world and become one of us and faced everything that we will ever face. The God that has shown his solidarity with our humanity, even to the point of death on a cross. The God who has revealed perfectly uh, what it is like to live by the Spirit in our flesh, the God who has forgiven us of our sins and our transgressions and opened up a new way to live, in light of all that, in response to all that, the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, living sacrifice, that's, a, that's kind of an ox- oxymoron there. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird phrase, especially if you were living back in the first century. Because, you know, one of the most common things that, that uh, cultural anthropologists have noticed about human beings and religion is that religion, no matter where in the world, it seems like the inclination, the, the impulse to offer sacrifice to connect with the divine is, is almost universal. You see it popping up in Africa, South America, Europe, Middle East, East Asia. It's one of the fundamental ways that human beings have always understood the connection to the divine. And so if you, if you look at even in Judaism or other religions, oftentimes you would take your, you know, if you had cows or livestock, you would take your most prized cow and you would sacrifice that to God as an offering. It was, it was the best that you had and you were sacrificing it to God as, just, as, as a way of saying, God, I trust you. I'm giving back to you something that, that is, is worth an immense amount to me. Or if it was produce, you would offer God the first that came in. You know, when you first start seeing your crops, you would take that stuff that, that's the, the, the first part of it and you would give it to God. But we even see this with human sacrifice and child sacrifice, which are, are horribly appalling things. But I think underneath it all was this, this, this idea that, that sacrifice has to cost you something. It's, it's, it's not, there's even a story in the Bible where, where David, you know, he, he's not going to give a sacrifice unless it costs him something. That's the way he understood God. But Paul is saying here, he said, what God's, God's not after your cows or your sheep or or your children. What God wants is you. You're the sacrifice. It's, it's quite fascinating, the apostle Paul, if you read his writings, because he is, he's reorienting uh, everything from Judaism in a new way. There's no temple anymore. What's the temple? It's the people of God. You are the temple. Y'all are the temple, actually. You're the temple of the Lord, the people of God. There's no priest anymore except Jesus. Jesus is our high priest. But when it comes to offerings, the offering that God's looking for is you and me that we would live daily before God, that we would live sacrificially, we would live with an awareness that, that our lives are lived out before God and in God, and that everything we do is an act of worship. You know that thing we did up here before I got up here to speak, you know, when we were singing those songs together? That is an act of worship, but that's not the totality of worship. And I think that's one thing we, we confuse, like, oh, we had such a good time of worship today. Well, no, for the Christian, everything you do is an act of worship. Everything. I like the way... um... (laughs) Well, I'll get to that in a minute. So it starts off by being a living sacrifice. And I, I think I think this is actually kind of similar to the first three steps of the 12 steps. And, you know, step one is we came to, to believe that our lives were out of control and unmanageable. Step two, I came to believe that there was a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity. Step three, we came to surrender our life and our will over to God as we understood God. That's... Living sacrifice, at least the first part of it. It's kind of like what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, the first of the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize you don't know as much as you thought. What? (laughs) Blessed are you when you realize you're not as rich as you thought. Blessed are you when you finally realize you don't understand things as well as you have led yourself to believe. That's when you begin stepping into the kingdom of God. Paul is inviting us into a type of life where we acknowledge our, our brokenness, we acknowledge God, and we take our hands off and we trust God with that. And we do that in every situation that we face or we try to. That's living intentionally. that's living sacrifice. Now, he goes on to talk about this. He says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. These are kind of two different phrases. One speaks of something being squeezed into the mold. The other speaks of a formation that happens internally. We human beings are creatures of formation. When you were born, you may have had all of your, your anatomical parts in the right places. You may have had all your fingers and toes, and you may have looked perfectly... Uh, put together as a as a physical being, but how long was it before you were able to be left unsupervised? <laughs> if you look at other animals, other mammals, like if you ever see a cow have a calf, it's amazing. Like that calf is walking around pretty quick, and within about a year, that calf doesn't even need mama anymore. And that's the way it is for most mammals. But we human beings, we are creatures of formation. We come out, but we're we may look fully formed on the outside. But do you realize modern brain science has, has discovered that even your brain is not fully developed until you hit about 23 to 25 years old? We are creatures of formation. And how are our brains, our minds formed? They're formed through our relationships. I mean, even, even in the first days of your life where you're being held by your mother, looking up into her face, th- that's formative. <laughs> We're formed by our relationships, we're formed by our experiences, but we're also formed by the way that we're told to interpret those experiences. Whether it's by our family, whether it's by culture, society, the media, Hollywood, everything is trying to shape our desire after its own agenda. The Republicans are doing it, trying to shape your desires after their agenda. The Democrats are trying to shape your desires after their agenda. Hollywood's trying to shape your desires after their agenda. Everybody has an agenda that they want to form your desires towards. But but Paul says, don't just become so well adapted to this world that you just fit into it without thinking about it. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And here's something about renewing your mind. You don't renew your mind by trying to think differently. I think so, so often, I, I want to change the way I'm thinking. I, we, we all want to change the way we're thinking, I think, hopefully. You don't change the way you're thinking by trying to think differently. If I put a picture of a, a pink elephant up on the, the screens here and said, okay, whatever you do, don't think about the pink elephant. What's everybody going to be thinking about? Pink elephant. Pink elephant. I used to do this with my daughter, Tevia when she was a little kid, you know. She'd be all grumpy and having a bad attitude. And I'd say, okay, whatever you do, Tevia, don't smile. And and then before you know it, like she'd only last about 10 seconds before she starts cracking a smile. By trying not to think about something, we actually empower ourselves to become more focused on the thing that we're not trying to think about. If you really want to change how you think, it doesn't start... Intellectually, it starts with embodied action. I'll use a little sports analogy. Got any Saints fans in here? We planted this church. I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, we're in a time right now where, you know, financially things look a little difficult. But when we planted this church, the Saints went to the Super Bowl. Maybe a good sign, but no, I don't know. Um, Drew Brees I think this was before he went to the Super Bowl, there was a show called Sports Science. I don't know if any of y'all saw this clip before, but they got Drew Brees out there, and they wanted to, to, to put Drew Brees up against an Olympic archer and see who was more accurate at hitting a target. I think it was like 40 yards down the road. I may be messing it up a little bit, but so the archer shot 10 arrows at this target and hit four out of 10 at the, at the bullseye. Drew Brees gets out there and just like a boss, goes boom, 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 10 out of 10. And and that was quite impressive. It's not quite as impressive as as what you see in a game, though. Think about Drew Brees. He gets a snap, and now there's five guys that are 300-plus pounds just with the only agenda as to take him down, and he's having to scramble out of the pocket, and then he throws a ball 40 yards at a moving target and hits it. That's impressive. But you know what got me when the, the interviewer on this program, he says, so how do you do that, Drew Brees? He goes, I don't, I don't even think about it. It's just muscle memory. What? See, the reality is, Drew Brees could have decided when he was 10 years old, I want to grow up and be an NFL quarterback. And he could have watched footage of all the great quarterbacks. And he could have read books on techniques. He could have spent 10 hours a day studying for, for 15 years about all the things that go into being a good quarterback. But unless he actually got out there and started throwing a ball... It wouldn't be the Drew Brees that we know. Why is it that when it comes to sports or music or any other skill in life that we can see that, but when it comes to our spiritual life, we just assume that just because I prayed a prayer to Billy Graham crusade 20 years ago, you know, God's just going to change me. There's no change in your life if there's not intentionality. And that intentionality must involve your bodies. It's interesting that Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. It takes your, if you want to change your mind, it begins with your actions. It begins with your actions. I put this little thing in your outline, uh, I, steps of learning a skill. I came across this a few years ago, and it's, it's true. If you want to, say you uh, go to a concert and you see some guy playing the acoustic guitar and you're like, oh, man just moves me. I want to play the acoustic guitar. And you go out to a music store and you buy an acoustic guitar and you sign up for some lessons. You enter upon stage one. Stage one is called unconscious incompetence. You don't know what you don't know. You know you've been inspired by music and you want to do it, but you have no idea what you're getting into. If you stick with it a little bit, you move to stage two, which is conscious incompetence. You begin realizing, oh, Now I start. I'm. I'm realizing what I don't know. Most people make it about three or four months trying to play the acoustic guitar because it's just not fun. Your fingers may bleed, and your your hands are cramped, and it's awkward, and it doesn't sound anything like why you got the acoustic guitar to begin with. But if you press through that, you end up in conscious. Uh, I, I think I actually. Yeah. It's actually supposed to be conscious. Competent. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking at the wrong point. Yeah, conscious competence. <laughs> conscious competence is where you can do the thing that you wanted to do with some level of proficiency, but it takes a lot of mental processing. I remember when I first started playing the guitar at age 20. I've been playing it for about three months, and I finally had about five chords down. And I'm trying to, you know, sing and play at the same time. And I got to where I could do it, <laughs> but it's like the slightest thing could distract me, and the whole thing would just fall apart. That's conscious competence. But the final stage of this is unconscious competence. It's Drew Brees saying, I don't even think about it. I just do it. You know, when I play guitar now and I'm singing up here on a Sunday morning, I'm not really thinking much about what I'm playing on the guitar, which frees me up to kind of encounter the Holy Spirit and think about what's going on in the room, think about what I'm saying. Why is it that we can understand that when it's music (laughs) or football, but we don't look at that in the spiritual life. See, that's the spiritual life. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We experience transformation by daily submitting our lives to God as a living sacrifice. We do it over and over and over again. Spiritual disciplines and intentionality in our faith Form us over long periods of time, so that our faith is not merely mental assent to Christian ideals, but rather embodied in our character as we truly become more like Christ. What is the point of the Christian journey? It's to become more like, like Christ. It's not going to heaven when you die. That's included. The reason we're here, though, is to become more like Christ, to embody that. James writes in James two, fourteen through seventeen. Dear friends. Do you think you'll get anywhere in this life if you learn all the right words but never do anything? Does merely talking about faith indicate that a person really has it? For instance, you come upon an old friend dressed in rags and and half-starved and you say, Good morning, friend. Be clothed in Christ. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And walk off without providing so much as a coat or a cup of soup? Where does that get you? Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? Mm, Don't shout me down now. You know, last Monday was a sad day. One of my favorite uh, authors and somebody I consider a mentor in my faith, Eugene Peterson, passed away. And I actually did a podcast this week um, with some some. Different contributors from around the country, uh, Jonathan Martin and uh, Brad Jerzak, and my friend Brian Johnson from the South Shore, and we just were talking about Eugene Peterson. I've just been reflecting on so much of his work, and I'm rereading one of his his best books called "Long Obedience in the Same Direction." And he writes this: We live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there can be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. Worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God and worship, our deep, essential need to be in relationship with God is nurtured. Now, one of the reasons we come here week after week is not just because You know, I feel like worshiping on a Sunday morning. I'm going to go get my worship on. You know, we don't just do it just because we feel like it. We do this because it's a formative practice in our life. Coming to the communion table week after week with other Christians, singing songs where we corporately come together, we take our hands off our lives and experience God together, praying for one another, looking into the scriptures together. This is formative, it won't change your life in a weekend, or two weekends, or maybe in three or four years, but the cumulative effects of how it forms us is part of what's going on, and part of why we participate in spiritual disciplines. You know, in my life, there have been a number of of disciplines I've adopted over the years. One of the the first spiritual disciplines I I really began adopting was probably back in 2004, Um, and it was the discipline of community. I had... Struggled with some things that I was very ashamed of, and I never told another person about. And I remember going to this uh, worship leaders retreat up in Estes Park, Colorado, my first vineyard worship leaders retreat, and I get up there, and it happened to be that the the speaker was a guy in his 60s, and he happened to talk about struggling with the same things I was struggling with for the first decade. He was a Christian, I was like, oh, no, Lord, I thought we were coming here to learn how to lead worship. (laughs) And he said, we're going to break into our small groups and pray for one another, and I knew it was a moment of decision. Either I could keep this stuff in my heart or I could actually open up and, and, and share what I was struggling with. And I was terrified because I was pretty sure there was a blacklist for vineyard worship leaders. And, you know, my small group leader was the son of the national director. And I'm like, this is I'm, I'm probably never going to lead worship in another. You know, it's amazing how much shame, how we build up these things in our mind that are just so awful. But I opened up my mouth, and I shared with these other guys, and, and they didn't judge me. They loved me. They prayed for me. And my small group leader, Reagan Wagner, who I'm still friends with to the end of the, to this day, <laughs> to the end of this day. Um, <laughs> sorry, Reagan. <laughs> he tells me at the end of the week, he says, Do you have any other friends that you can you know, continue to have these kind of authentic conversations with? And it was such a wake-up call for me because I was on staff at a church that was 1,500, 2,000 people on the weekends. And I didn't have one friend that I could be authentic with my journey. So I was like, no. So I began praying. And it took six months before I found somebody. And then that guy had to move away three weeks later. So then I prayed for a little bit longer. And then I ended up, there was another guy on staff at the church there, and we just we started talking, and we started talking about our struggles together. And pretty soon, it turned into a group of eight or ten guys. And, and every Wednesday, we'd bring sack lunches, and we would just meet together to discuss what, our, what we're going through, the, our struggles, our joys, and pray for one another and encourage one another. And it was revolutionary. And that's where I first began to learn the discipline of community. I'm an only child. I'm okay being by myself. I go to movies by myself. I go to restaurants by myself. I'm generous content by myself, but I know left to myself, I'm not going to enter into the life that Jesus has. So every week, I usually have four or five hours a week that I'm spending in conversation with other people where I'm in authentic community, whether it's people uh, here in Louisiana or people I call up on the phone. I'm not living my life by myself anymore. It's the discipline of community. I've learned the discipline of contemplation. You know, sometimes when I'm most anxious about life, I've learned I've got to step away and just sit outside like a bump on a log and just look at nature and let nature and God speak to me. It's a discipline, though. It's a discipline because it's counterintuitive. Another one is the discipline of generosity. You know, I, I shared some of my story last week that, um, you know, I when I was... Uh, I was a part of of churches in the first decade where when it came time for for receiving the offering, it would usually be a 20, 25-minute message uh, employing a lot of guilt and manipulation and and twisting of scriptures to to get you to give. And, And there was one morning, you know, I didn't know much about studying the Bible, but I remember sitting in church in Hammond this one morning. And there was a guest speaker, this, this prominent evangelist guy, and he was going into the same old tired spiel that I heard so many times. And I looked at Dean and I said, you know what? We're not tithing anymore. And she's like, what? It's like, we're not tithing anymore. I'm tired of giving out of compulsion. I'm tired of being manipulated and guilted into doing things. I don't think that's God's will. And so she's like, are we, are we still going to give? Yes, we're going to give. But now we're not going to give under compulsion. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit to lead us in how we're going to get. We were making below the poverty level. We were were setting aside about 10% of our income to give, and we'd been giving it for years to the church. Now we were going to take that 10%, and we were going to ask God, how should we spend this? One of the first things we found, there was a a mentally disabled guy that was living right across from the church who'd been without electricity for a couple of weeks, right across from the church that he attended. We got his electricity turned back on. We met a single mom who couldn't afford diapers and formula. We bought that for her. We kept asking God, how are we supposed to to give of our we invited God into the process. And by the end of that year, guess what? We weren't cursed. We were blessed to participate in what God was doing. No longer were we just giving so we could get something for God or keep the enemy away from our finances. We were participating in what God was doing, and it made all the difference in the world. And here's where I want to show you how it became part of our spiritual formation. Because you fast forward all these years to to 2009, where we decided to plant this church. That was an uh, anxiety-producing thing because we loved our church. It was our community. We weren't leaving because we thought we could do this thing better. We loved the people there. Our kids had friends. And this was really hard on my kids, especially my daughter at the time, because she had a better social life than I'll ever have. And there was one night where we just ended up having an impromptu family meeting, and my daughter's crying, everybody's crying. I don't know, We don't. why do we have to leave and go to this other place where we don't even know anybody? And I just told my kids, I said, I read out of Matthew, I said, Jesus says, don't worry about where you're going to live, what you're going to wear, what's going to be on the table, but seek first the kingdom of God and God's righteousness, and God's going to take care of the rest of it. And I told my kids, I said, I, if you can get anything from us, I hope you get that. That it is worth it to follow God, no matter what the obstacles may be, that God will take care of you. So fast forward. That was the spring of 2009. November 2009, Kinder Vineyard, they get us up there on stage as a family. They ordain me. They take up an offering. They send us out. And we're ready to, we'd been meeting, you know, doing an alpha course over here and doing our Saturday night service, our test kitchen, you know, trying to figure out how to even do a Sunday service, you know, or weekend service. And we were just a few weeks away from our... Opening service, open to the public, but we still hadn't sold our condo. We weren't living here. And I'm like, God, you know, this whole incarnational ministry thing, like being able to be in a community, like that's big to me. And like I'm applying for jobs at Starbucks, just like trying to just get like just a little money so I could get a one-bedroom efficiency place so my family could at least stay over here on the weekends when we're, we're doing our, our services. Nothing's working. Starbucks wouldn't even hire me. And so around the first of December that year, first part of December, there was a, a couple in our in our, our core team, and they had had an accident in their car, and it wasn't totaled. It was some body damage. And I'm sitting out on my back patio in Kenner, drinking coffee, talking with God one day, and God was like, you need to give them some money to help them with their repairs. So I was like, okay. So I called him up. I said, hey, I want to give you all $200 to help you fix your car. And they're like, oh, thank you so much. Next week, there was... Another friend of mine who uh, he, his engine blew up going on the causeway, and so it, 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 was a, it was a pretty big deal. And I'm sitting back on my patio drinking coffee, coffee with Jesus, and uh, and I felt God say, "Why didn't you ask me about helping him?" I was like, "Well, that guy's got a little bit more money than this family. This family's been struggling financially." And God was like, "No, I want you to give him 200 bucks too." I was like, "All right." So I called him up and said, "Hey, dude." I know two hundred bucks don't go very far on fixing an entire engine, but I I just I really felt prompted by God. I want to I want to give that to you. He goes, oh, thanks a bunch, man. I really appreciate that. By the way, me and my wife we've been talking, and and we think if you're going to pastor a church on the North Shore, you you probably ought to live over there. I was like, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love for that to happen. And he says, well. You know, I, I haven't been good about, like, uh, you know, carrying my checkbook to church and things. So, you know, we kind of got some money stored up for the whole year that I'll just, I usually give at the end of the year. Anyway, would $25,000 help you get over there? <laughs> I, I had to, like, l- pick my jaw up off the floor. I was, <laughs> I was like, how weird is this? I call to give this guy 200 bucks and I get $25,000. And we were able to move over here a week later. And, and rent a place, even though we hadn't sold our condo. We didn't sell our condo till this year. <laughs> I want, I'm like, God, why couldn't I get the, the story that I hear from so many church planners? Like, they put their house on the market, and one day later, it's sold for more than they wanted. So, so we move over here. Two weeks later, we do our first service. We had enough money, as I said, to, to get this church five months, five months down the road. By the time we hit May that year, I, we were we were just dipping below $5,000 in our operation account, but we were starting to head the other direction. Whoo! Dodged a bullet. Until July of 2010, July 15th, I had a, a heart attack, which they call a, a widow maker. You're normally dead in like five to ten minutes. I was 37 years old, never had heart problems. I'm... Um, and after, you know, four days in the hospital, you know, as soon as I get the stint, they put a stint in my heart, you know. And and I'd had insurance for seven years when I was on staff at the Kenner Vineyard. And all, we'd been trying to get insurance, but we kept being denied because we weren't a part of a group policy. It was the first time in my life where the whole insurance, health insurance thing became kind of real. And so my whole time in the hospital, after I get this stint in my heart, I'm like, it's like price is right. I'm trying to figure out how much does all this stuff cost? You know, twenty, thirty? Well, the financial counselor of the hospital, I had to meet with her before I left. And she said, um, look, you're going to get a bill in the mail and you'll probably be freaked out. Just give me a call when it arrives in. And, and you know, the, the hospital's probably going to ride off a little bit. I was like, okay. So about a month later, I get the bill in. And just the hospital part was like $93,000. And there was about another $10,000 worth of stuff. We were looking around $100,000 worth of bills. And we had spent years getting out of debt. We, the only debts that we owed, we paid off our cars, the only thing we owed was student loans at that point. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I almost had another heart attack. <laughs> but I called the lady up. She said, okay, come by, pick up this packet. You fill this stuff out, bring it back to me, and the, and the hospital will let you know. So I did that. And the whole time I'm going, God, like, God, like if I was going to have a heart attack, oh, omniscient one, <laughs> why couldn't I have had a heart attack when I was, had health insurance and all that? So, I, I, turn, so I, I actually spent a whole day writing a letter to St. Tammany Hospital. And I'm like, I'm envisioning like some committee that would get around a table. And they're discussing, you know, the, the various charitable options. And, and I write this. It was some of my best writing. I was really proud of it. I mean, I spent all day. And I bring that with a packet to the lady at the hospital. She says, man, that letter, that's really good. I was like, I know. I know. She said, I got to tell you something. Like, this is not. It's not a committee around a table. This is like a computer that crunches numbers. And the way I see it, they'll probably write 40,000 off. I'm like, that's great. I'm happy. (laughs) But still, this is a debt that we will probably not pay off for the rest of our lives. So I turned everything in. And then on November first, two 2010, I got a call from the hospital. And they said, the hospital has agreed to write off 100%. Yeah. I cheated death. Won the lottery. And and I I was like, what do I do? How do I even say thank you to like a computer program or whatever happened? I was like, I was, and and that day I was just reminded of all the festivals that the people of Israel, you know, Passover, the festival booths, the different uh, festivals that they celebrated in the Old Testament to remember how God had come through for them and how that was so formative. Even to this day, for thousands of years, the Jewish people have been celebrating these festivals. And it's a reminder. How God heard their prayers. And sometimes they would celebrate Passover when everything's going good. Sometimes they'd celebrate it in captivity. But the point was they remembered how God heard their cries and delivered them. And so that night, I, th- I thought the only thing we can do is, is start our own family uh, holiday called God Takes Care of the Schroeder's Day. And so we went out to a, a Chinese restaurant that night, and it was such a beautiful thing. Because there I am, I am sitting at the table with, with Dina and Tevia and Ezra, and we were talking about everything that had happened since I had that conversation in our house where we were all crying, and I said, seek first the kingdom of God, and God will take care of us. In addition to, to getting my paycheck, we'd had like $125,000 of extra stuff that, that, that happened in our life that year. And I'm not sharing this story as some kind of formula. Like, you know, just like, heck, I don't, I didn't, under, like, none of that was on my radar. But I can say this, God has always taken care of us. It's never, it's not always looked the way we wanted God to take care of us, but God has always done it. This is what spiritual formation looks like. It's not a quick answer to your life, but it's living your life intentionally, bringing in practices So it will form you. It will shape your desire so you're not so attached to your stuff or the opinions of other people. And when the world is shaking, you can stand there and go, I've got peace in the midst of the storm. I'll close with one more quote from Eugene Peterson because I know I've gone over. I tried to make this message short, but uh, it it wasn't working with me. This is... um, (laughs) Good. (laughs) Good. This is again from a long obedience in the same direction. And I think this really hits at the heart of what spiritual disciplines are and why we do them, why we undertake these actions. He says, hoping does not mean doing nothing, it is not fatalistic resignation. It means going about our assigned task confident that God will provide the meaning and the conclusions. It's not compelled to work away at keeping up appearances with a bogus spirituality. It is the opposite of desperate and panicky manipulations, of scurrying and worrying. And hoping is not dreaming. It is not spinning an illusion or fantasy to protect us from our boredom or our pain. It means a confident, alert expectation that God will do what he said he will do. It's an imagination put in the harness of faith. It is a willingness to let God do it his way and in his time. It is the opposite of making plans that we demand God to put in effect, telling him both how and when to do it. That's not hoping in God, but bullying God. And with that mic drop from Eugene Peterson, I will <laughs> drop the mic. Lord, well, the question we ask today is, What is what is the intentionality you're inviting us into what what disciplines lord what ways can we live Lord, giving more emphasis to community contemplation generosity how can we live in a way that will form and shape those desires so that we are not so shaken by the things going on in our world but that we become more like you god i pray every one of us would hear the invitation of your spirit in our lives this week and in the coming weeks and we thank you so much what you're doing in our hearts and in this community. Lord, just we're thankful for getting to be a part of it, God. Amen. All right. Please, if you've got kids, go apologize to everybody over there. Tell them next week it's going to be different, and it's the last of my long messages. And if you need prayer, come up to the front.